Father, you are so abundantly kind. God, you are so abundantly gracious and generous and patient and loving, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving us of all of our iniquity. God, you are faithful. Lord, you are our precious treasure. God, we gather this morning to give you praise. God, we gather this morning to sing your praise. God, we gather this morning to be strengthened by faith. God, we gather this morning to encourage one another. God, we gather this morning to be fed by your word. God, we are grateful to be able to gather this morning. Many of us need encouragement. Many of us, Father, need to be strengthened. Many of us, Lord, need to be reassured that you are not yet done with us. Lord, many of us uh, must uh, confess our sin before you. Many of us must find spiritual refreshment uh, and renewal with you. God, we have all come uh, this morning uh, after six long days. Uh, many of us have dealt with various different trials and difficulties. Uh, many of us have dealt with great joy and celebration. But Father, we are here now from so many different walks of life and different spheres of influence, different challenges and different, different joys. And, and God, we together confess with one voice that Christ is Lord. So Father, wherever we may be and however way we may have arrived, Lord, we ask and pray that in this gathering, your saints would be encouraged and edified. Father, we ask that as we read your word and as we uh, hear your word preached, Lord, that we would be strengthened uh, not to uh, just grit our teeth and try to strive through the Christian life in our own strength, but Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith so that we would lift our eyes up to look to Christ, who has satisfied all of the holy demands of your law, who has satisfied all of the things that would be required for us to be able to draw near to your presence. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to look to Jesus, uh, to confidently enter your throne of grace. Father, we uh, think of uh, today not only the ministry that's being uh, exercised here on High Street and throughout Washington County, Father, we think of the Wilkerson's. Lord, I'm sure uh, Tim and Jill would pray very similar words that we're praying now. God, would you help us to trust you? And God, in this effort of planting a church in Baltimore, Father, would you, Lord, continue to empower them and, 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 and strengthen them to trust you? God, we, we pray that uh, you would bring about a new work uh, that is proclaiming the same truths of an old work, the old work that Jesus has accomplished. Father, we think of uh, the many who have yet to come to know Christ here in Washington County and there in Baltimore City. Father, we pray that the word of God would go forth boldly uh, through healthy churches proclaiming the gospel faithfully. Father, we think of Virginia Avenue Baptist. We think of Bridge of Life. We think of Redemption City Church in Baltimore. God, we pray that the gospel would boldly go forth here through Hagerstown Church. God, we do not desire to simply make ourselves uh, known amongst the community. Father, we pray that uh, when we go out, when we scatter, when we regather, Father, we pray that the gospel will go forth. Father, we pray for gospel renewal in the hearts of weak Christians. Father, we pray that you would help those who are uh, thinking of you to rejoice in Christ. Father, we pray that if we have forgotten what Jesus has done, Lord, you, that you would remind us again that Jesus lived a perfect, satisfactory life, that he obeyed perfectly the laws of God. 
that he died as a substitute in our place to pay the penalty of the sins of his people and those who would turn by faith to trust him. Father, would you help us to remember that he did not stay in the grave? Lord, help us to see the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen. Father, as we consider your word this morning, we ask that you would help us to see the good news of Christ in the scriptures. Father, we pray that you would encourage us now and help us to look to him and him alone. In all these things, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Good morning and welcome to our gathering here at Hagerstown Church. My name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. And I don't just serve as one of the pastors, I joyfully serve as one of the pastors here. And it is so good to be with you all uh, this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we are glad you're here. Uh, we hope that you will be strengthened and encouraged. If you've been with us for a long time or even just a few, uh, few short weeks, I'm so happy to see you all. We have entered this season that may be very common to all of us. Uh, usually between May and June, the flowers start to bloom and the clouds start to recede and the sun starts to come out and you can start to wear short sleeves again. But the season that I'm referring to is not the warm summer season. It's graduation. Right? Many of us have probably experienced graduation in some way or some shape or form. Uh, family members are probably, if you already haven't been invited to, but uh, you may be soon attending a high school graduation or a middle school graduation or uh, whatever other graduations uh, that might come. Uh, this past week, I had the honor to go to a high school graduation for a dear loved one, and uh, it was alarming. I didn't realize until I sat in this massive gymnasium just how much older I had become. <laughs> My back was creaking. It was uncomfortable to sit crouched. Uh, I also didn't realize how deep my crow's nest had settled. Sometimes I would see gray hairs in my beard. But when you see baby-faced high school students who have the entire world before them, all of the world's potential just right before them, you realize, man, I am feeling really tired. <laughs> but one of the things that this high school graduation reminded me of was not only all of my maybe unmet potential or the ways that I had fallen short of uh, all those promises that I thought I would be able to carry out, but it brought back an, uh, just a flood of memories. Specifically, not just bad hairstyles and really annoying um, habits that I probably got into and not just, um, um, just goofy things that I, I did as a foolish teenager. Um, what, what the, the flood of memories that came back to my mind was uh, this, this drumbeat of character counts. I don't know if anybody here ever went to public school, but I went to a public high school and all throughout our hallways, there were banners and signs of character counts, kindness, respect, citizenship, Never really understood what that part meant because I was an underage student. Uh, 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 patriotism, uh, 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 care for others, compassion, all these different uh, characteristics that would count. As I was sitting there hearing all these students share their memories and their experiences in this uh, mid-COVID, intra-COVID, post-COVID experience of high school, what I realized was character counts. And so these students, for the past four years, had spent some significant amount of time being shaped, being formed, 
being developed, right? And, what, and, the, and the promise that they were facing or, or, be, or being told by the Board of Ed and the uh, various different supervisors and uh, their uh, staff and faculty of their school was there is a great world of opportunity before them. They were being shaped to view the world that they were about to walk into. Now, what I realized in that moment was the world is shaping us in various different ways and influences. Now, if you are a parent, you have probably at some point wondered, how do I do this parenting thing? I need some help. Maybe there's some helpful resources. Uh, a very lucrative career that you might find is in the publishing industry. If you have something worth saying that you can monetize, you can produce a book proposal and submit it to a publisher. And that publisher may then request that you publish or produce a manuscript. After, various, after a number of years of various edits, that manuscript will become a published book. Did you know that there are an entire world of libraries filled with books on parenting alone. Now, that goes to show us one thing. Uh, people want resources, right? Now, let me give you just a couple of examples of uh, books that I found. I'm not recommending these specifically. I'm not uh, condemning them either, but there's a picture that gets painted here. So these are the top five of the top 100 best-selling books on parenting of all time. Number one, if I have to tell you one more time, the revolutionary program that gets your kids to listen without nagging, reminding, or yelling. Number two, the whole brainchild, 12 revolutionary strategies to nurture your child's developing mind. Number three, how to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk. Number four, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Number five, No Drama Discipline, the whole brain way to calm the chaos and nurture your child's developing mind. Friends, that's just five of the top 100. So what that, what that says is this list was pared down, and I took that list and pared it down to five. There's so many more. What the picture that I'm trying to paint here is, we all seek to shape and form those under our care. This morning, we are going to continue our church covenant series as we consider our fifth principle. Uh, if you uh, uh, haven't seen, you'll find a copy of our church covenant in the back of the black pew Bibles in front of you. This is the fifth principle that we're, we're considering this morning, and it's simply the main idea of our uh, sermon this morning. We will endeavor to bring up any that are under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and seek the salvation of our family and friends through God's word and our Christ-like example. So I'll say that one more time. We will, we will endeavor to bring up any that are under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and seek the salvation of our family and friends through God's word and our Christ-like example. Now, this particular principle would appear it's specifically geared towards parents and families now i recognize that not all of us have children in this room some of us are children in this room not all of us may have children some of us may be unmarried some of us may not have children some of us may be empty nesters where our kids have grown they have left they moved far away or maybe they're very close but they have children of their own and now we're empty nesters who are grandparents I, I, let me encourage you don't 
fall asleep in this first part of the sermon because I am convinced, and I believe you are as well, that the Spirit of God will use the Word of God, no matter where we are in this life, to continue to shape us to be conformed into the image of the Son of God. So, hang with me, even if you are not in this particular phase of life. So, this fifth principle. There are two commitments that we have made as church members in this uh, one principle. The first commitment is that we have committed to engage in disciple-making in our homes, bringing up those under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the second is that we will engage in disciple-making amongst our neighbors. Right? We want to seek the salvation of those who uh, don't know the Lord through God's word and through our Christ-like example. So let's consider our first endeavor, disciple-making in our homes. So we promise that we will endeavor to bring up any that are under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, if you're new to reading the Bible, the letter to the Ephesians is found in the New Testament. This morning you'll see that we have a few guests with us. They're not really guests, they're family members. They're our kiddos uh, from uh, the Blue Station and the Gray Station. So kids and adults. If you need help finding Ephesians, remember, I still use this, Gentiles eat pork chops, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Now, just a quick recap, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, and when you read through this brief letter, you can summarize it in two really brief statements. I'm being reductionistic here, but two brief statements. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul encourages the Ephesian Christians to look to Jesus. In chapters 4 through 6, he instructs the Ephesian Christians how to live as followers of Jesus. We can't confuse the two. There's a specific order that Paul gives for a specific reason. We're to look to Jesus, and then we're to obey these specific commands to live as followers of Jesus. So in the first three chapters... Paul explains the gospel, and in these first three chapters, there is one command. In the second half, chapters 4 through 6, there are the final 40 commands. Now, kids, do you know what the word gospel means? Yes. All right, we've got one kid who knows what the gospel means. So for all of us who might not know what the word gospel means, it comes from a really word, English word, uh, Godspell. We pronounce it gospel. The gospel, this word simply means good news. The gospel is not a bunch of rules that are really hard for you to keep to make God happy. The gospel is God's very good news. This good news begins with God. God who is holy and perfect and righteous, and God who created everything, the stars and the moon and the hair on your head and the clothes you're wearing, and even the trees that were cut down to make the pews that you're sitting on, he has made all of us in his image that we would know God and love him. Now, the gospel is good news, but there's some bad news that we have to keep in mind as well. And the bad news is that we have all sinned against God. We've all fallen short of God's perfection and his standard. And because we've sinned against God, God says we deserve punishment. And God has said that that punishment for our sins is death. Now, remember, I said the word gospel means good news. So where is the good news in all of this? The good news is in God himself. God who is full of grace and mercy and love 
He sent his perfect son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life. So what's so special about Jesus? Does Jesus have magic powers to do whatever he wants? Not exactly. What's so special about Jesus is that Jesus perfectly loved God and obeyed God. And unlike you and I, Jesus never sinned. Jesus is perfect. And the good news is that instead of punishing us, God sent Jesus to die on the cross as our substitute so that we wouldn't pay this penalty. But Jesus didn't stay dead because three days later, Jesus rose back to life. By being raised to life, Jesus defeated our sin. He defeated death. And if you place your faith and your trust in Jesus, God will forgive you of all of your sin yesterday, today, and forever. And he will give you as a gift of grace a new life to live with God forever. Now, parents, adults, grandparents, non-parents, that good news isn't just good news for our children. That is good news for all of us. Every single one of us needs to hear this good news. Now, in the second half of the letter, where we get these other 40 commands, Paul then explains that if we've placed our faith and our trust in Christ, there is now a certain way that we are supposed to live. Right? There are certain things that we shouldn't do anymore because we've put off our old self, and there are certain things that we should do because we are to put on the new self. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul has something to say to all of the kids. Kids, listen to God's word. This is what God has to say to you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So kids, what has God commanded you? God has commanded that you obey and honor your mom and dad. Now, parents, God has uh, not only given a specific command to our children, he's given specific commands to us, specifically fathers. So God has given commands to fathers. Our first endeavor in this covenant principle is drawn directly from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's absolutely astonishing. Paul's key to parenting is to tell dads, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do you know what Paul did not continue to go on to do? Write 100 best-selling books on parenting. This brief instruction is given to fathers. Now, this begs the question, why does Paul address fathers only and not say parents? Why doesn't he say moms and dads, do not provoke your children to anger? Well, this doesn't mean that Paul was being um, uh, misogynistic in any way, where he didn't see the valuable role that women and mothers are to play. That's, that's obviously not the case, because just earlier in verse 1, he reminded children of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Right? And this particular command to fathers is given in the context of the local church. It's not an isolated individualistic command. This is going to fathers in the context of the church. So why does he speak to fathers directly? He speaks to fathers as the special focus because fathers are the representative heads of the family. And here in Ephesians chapter 6, the headship of fathers is the natural extension of the husband's headship in marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 to 25. So in this calling, Paul first explains a negative 
what we should not do. And then he explains a positive, what we should do. So fathers are commanded not to provoke their children to anger. This command seems pretty straightforward. Don't make your children angry. The Greek phrase basically means to arouse anger, to draw out and bring about anger. Right? Another term that we can use uh, in, this, uh, in, in, in translating this is the word exasperate. So fathers, do not exasperate your children. Now, I've been speaking to dads for the last couple of minutes. This does not mean that just because this command is directed to fathers, that means that mothers get a free ticket to exasperate their children all they want. That is not the case. So just because this is specifically directed to fathers, moms, you also ought to not exasperate your children. But that, that we have to ask the question, what does it mean to exasperate a child? What does it mean to provoke a child to anger? You know, maybe you've picked up Lou Priolo's book, uh, 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 Understanding Anger, uh, the, the dealing with the heart of angry children. What does it mean to deal with this issue of provoking a child to anger? Well, I'm going to quote a few helpful brothers uh, because I don't have it all together. Uh, this uh, past week of preparing this sermon was particularly difficult for me because I am keenly aware of my misgivings, my failures, my faults, my missteps, my shortcomings. And it's very easy to see the great standard that we are called to and how short we often fall. When I am delivering these words to you, I am not doing so in a pretense that I have it all figured out and I've got the secret sauce and the special formula that you need to apply to have good godly children who are perfectly well behaved in every setting so that you are never embarrassed. I don't have that formula. My encouragement, rather, is to help all of us to look to the Word of God, to lean upon the power of the Spirit of God, to trust in the Son of God, and to trust that what God has said in His Word is perfectly sufficient to equip us for the work that He has called us to. And this morning, the work that we are specifically considering is the work of bringing up those under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you, like me, have felt guilt and condemnation for how you have fallen short in your fathering, in this work of fatherhood. Romans chapter 8 reminds us that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So, I'm going to quote a bunch of brothers, and I think they're going to be helpful to you as they've been so immensely helpful to me. In his essay in the Modern Reformation Theological Journal, I'm a bit of a nerd, I like to read journals. Brian Chappell wrote this, and I found this to be extremely helpful. And even if you're not a parent or a grandparent or an empty nester, if you're single and unmarried and no kids, this is gold. Chappell said this, the preceding verses, so think back from chapter 1 all the way to Ephesians uh, chapter 6. The preceding verses stress the importance of using authority based on the example of Christ. Expressing love patterned after the sacrifice of Christ and showing respect out of reverence for Christ. So these three particular things, exercising authority, demonstrating love, and showing respect are non-negotiables in the work of putting on of the new and putting off of the old. So what would be inconsistent with these particular values that would cause our children to be exasperated? Let me give you a couple of examples that Chapel shared. Number one, 
Authority that requires submission, but submits to none. Authority that requires submission, but submits to none. As when a mother tells a child to quit whining by whining at him. Or when a father compels self-control by throwing a temper tantrum. And I would add, in my, own, in my own shortcomings, when a parent erupts in an outburst of sinful anger because a child annoyed them or disobeyed them. Authority that requires submission but submits to none. Number two, love that requires sacrifice but only seeks self. Number three, respect that is demanded at the expense of individual dignity. As when a parent shames a child into obedience or when one exerts control by comparing the child with others. Chapel goes on to say, the essence of biblical parenting is recognizing that we, moms and dads, are the dispensers of God's grace into our children's lives. Our children learn to identify and revere God's character through the way we treat them. So, practically speaking then, what are some things that we may do that need to be put off as a part of our old self and be repented of so as to not exasperate our children? Well, here's another uh, helpful brother. John Piper provided some helpful counsel uh, that was particularly convicting for me. Um, and if you feel convicted as well, uh, this is a good opportunity to submit these uh, to the Lord, trust in the Lord, confess your sins to the Lord, and ask God to continue to help you to be walking by faith in the Spirit, trusting Christ. So, here are eight things that we can do that will exasperate our children, that we ought to repent of if we're guilty of this. Number one, Piper says nagging. If you nag your children through repetitive demands or repetitive requirements that are unkind and demeaning, you will likely provoke your children to anger. I don't think anybody likes being nagged at. You know, Proverbs describes the uh, nagging wife like a, a, a rainwater continuously dripping on the roof. Nagging. Number two, demanding. Do you enjoy being demanded at? Maybe in the workplace. Difficult boss demanding that you uh, meet their expectations or their standards at a certain, or within a certain deadline? Probably not. So instead of demanding, we ought to consider how we ought to speak with one another, our children included. So if we want to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we ought to submit to what the Lord has already instructed to us in the way we speak to one another. God himself has spoken to us in his son, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And he continues to speak to us today through the scriptures. So how does God tell us to speak with one another, including our children? you're a note taker, you don't have to flip through the pages to find the verses, but let me encourage you to write these down. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind, tenderhearted. Speaking of being kind, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, nor is love ever rude. 
Uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Demanding will likely provoke your children to anger. Number three, getting angry. Uh, Bob Jones, in his book, Uprooting Anger, uh, surveyed, uh, he, he pointed to a survey uh, that, uh, that, that studied all of the various different instances of anger in the scriptures, both old and new. And the study showed that 89% of the time when anger is referenced in the Bible, people are wielding anger sinfully. So what that means is, I think anecdotally, 9 out of 10 times when you are angry, you're probably going to do something wrong. So... Would your children then describe you as someone who is slow to anger or quick to anger? Does the anger of man produce the righteousness of God? Well, here are a couple of other verses that I think would be helpful for us to consider when we get angry. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So, be imitators of God. What does it mean to imitate God. What kind of God are we then called to imitate? Well, you can read Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and see the magnificence and the glory and the majesty of God. Let me point you to how God himself explains who God is in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. You don't have to turn there. I'd encourage you to write this down. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Uh, critics of Christianity uh, will sometimes look at the God of the Old Testament and think that he is so much more violent than the God of the New Testament. But when I read the, the descriptions of God in the Old Testament, he sure sounds a whole lot like the same God that we read in the New Testament. A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here's another verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 to 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Getting angry will likely produce in our children a provocation to anger and exasperation. Number four, always resorting to the rod. Now, different families will approach the issue of discipline differently, but... I am not here to give you a formula of how you are to discipline your children. Rather, let me ask you this. Do you resort to some form of discipline before you resort to patient and gracious instruction and warning? Does your form of discipline seek to intimidate your children into obedience? There is a world of a difference between discipline that is thoughtful and loving that is preceded by patient and gracious instruction and warning, and a parent who is simply slap-happy. The authority we exercise is authority that is entrusted to us from God. So when we abuse that authority that he has entrusted to us, we carelessly demonstrate to our children what God's authority looks like. 
And God's authority, dear brothers and sisters, is never abusive, it's never oppressive, it's never ugly, and it is never destructively self-seeking. My pastoral counsel to you would be never to discipline in your children when you are angry. If I am angry, I should be very slow to trust myself until I put my anger away. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Number five, embarrassing. This one's a little bit, this one's kind of easy to think about, right? No one enjoys being embarrassed, and our children are no different. If we need to correct or rebuke our children, we ought to do so in private so as to not embarrass them. Speaking kindly and respectfully to them rather than seeking to publicly embarrass them is a means to build up our children. Embarrassing your children will only tear them down. Number six, belittling. Simply, don't call your children names like monster or tyrant, and I would even say jokingly, because out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So don't call your children names. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Do you notice how he says only such? Our responsibility then to speak is to speak in such a way that is constructive, not destructive. As fits the occasion, this requires wisdom then, that it, may give, that, it may, that it may give grace to those who hear. There is a goal that we must have in mind when we speak to our children, that they be built up, that they may receive grace when they hear words from us. Why? Because in the entrusted authority, in the authorial hierarchy that God has, uh, in his wisdom, designed the family, our authority represents the authority of God. Does God always speak to you in such a way that belittles you and tears you down? When I read through various passages of Scripture, I see passages like Zephaniah 3.17, where God has promised that he is going to sing and exult over us with great rejoicing. It doesn't say that he's going to belittle us. So, uh, so parents... Don't belittle your children. Your children's sin is not a license for you to engage in water cooler gossip or even church foyer gossip. Don't gossip about them. Don't complain or grumble about them. Don't belittle them. As ones who will hear your words, speak in such a way that is good for building them up and to give them grace. Number seven, Piper says, requiring the impossible. I'm just going to quote him uh, word for word here. Don't demand things that are impossible for the child to do at his age. Don't set him up for automatic failure. Don't say, I want you back here in 30 seconds when you know that's not even possible. You're asking the child to fail, which is discouraging. Requiring the impossible is exhausting and exasperating. Many of us have probably experienced that ourselves, and we can relate to this. Don't require the impossible of your children. Uh, a helpful way to think about this, too, is that uh, when God uh, sent his son, Jesus, Jesus accomplished for us all that we could not possibly accomplish. And the old confessions say, all we must do, then, is to rest in Christ and receive him by faith. The confessions and the scriptures do not call us to do what is impossible. Number eight, the final one here withholding forgiveness withholding forgiveness 
will likely exasperate your children and give to them an incorrect and inaccurate view of God's own forgiveness. So, parents, do you withhold forgiveness? Even if you're not a parent, do you withhold forgiveness? Everybody in this room, do you withhold forgiveness? If you do, does your withholding of forgiveness demonstrate that you've been saved by a merciful and gracious God who is abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, who has forgiven you of all of your sin? Or does your withholding of forgiveness reflect a cruel and unforgiving God who merely tolerates you? Having been forgiven by God ourselves, we, dear brothers and sisters, have absolutely no warrant to withhold forgiveness from our children. Again, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate your children. So that's a lot of stuff that I've told you not to do. Paul begins this command by telling us dads what we are not to do. Well, if we know what we should not do, what then should we do? Well, Paul says we are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Other translations uh, translate this phrase as bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So what does this mean, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? you know, just this phrase just seems to be thrown in here, but Paul is very specific about what he's talking about. This phrase, bring them up, it can also be translated as nourish. Uh, Paul uses the same word here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, as he does in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. He uses the same word for nourish when he's speaking to husbands, when he says, no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Fathers, then, are to provide care and nourish their children. There may be times where we have to delegate certain responsibilities for childcare to others, whether it's uh, mothers, whether it's uh, specific childcare. But we are never at any point absolved of our responsibility to provide nourishing care. So, how are we to then do this? How are we to nourish our children? Now, there is a very practical aspect. You got to feed your kids. And you got little ones, they probably snack a lot. It's probably okay that they snack. Now, the kind of nourishing that we're talking about is not just physical nourishment. It's not just filling bellies and making sure uh, kids are satisfied with uh, the types of snacks you have. The Greek term for discipline or nurture, this term refers to the general training of all parts of our children, including instructing their mind and shaping their character. So we are to help instruct them and shape them. The same word again is used in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, when Paul speaks of training. So when Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So fathers, parents, we are to model, teach, encourage, and train our children in godly patterns of life. Now, for some of us grandparents who don't have children in the home anymore, you may not have this direct responsibility of training your children. But what could you do? 
You can pray for your children and your grandchildren. You can model godly behavior, and you can model for them godly patterns of life. You can also encourage your children. You don't have to parent for them, but you can also model, teach, encourage, and, uh, and, and uh, pray for those that you love and care for. Parents are to model, teach, encourage, and train our children in godly patterns of life. Now, uh, so that's the term for discipline or nurture. Paul also brings, uh, uses this uh, term for instruction or admonition. So in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So what is this admonition? It carries the connotation of warning. Warning. We can all probably think of examples of when warning is required, such as when your children get too close to the sidewalk or when the stove is on. We warn our children, don't go too far. Don't touch that hot stove. Why are we doing that? Because we have an understanding of the pain and the difficulty that is going to come. We're warning them to not go down that path of damage and destruction. We are to warn, correct, encourage, and discipline our children when they behave or have attitudes that are inconsistent with godliness. Because remember, we are aiming to help them to know and to love and to see God. So we are exercising this authority that's been entrusted to us to help them be raised up and be brought up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Paul uses this phrase, of the Lord, kurios. He doesn't say we're to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of Chris. He doesn't say that we're to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of Joshua. He says, of the Lord. So our aim is not to produce little mini-me versions of ourselves, even though your kids probably look a lot like you. But we are to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are to train them and teach them to see God, to understand God's word, and to understand the gospel. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul has this dedicated commitment to proclaiming the gospel, to instruct Christians what the gospel is. He reminds the Colossian Christians in verses 28 and 29, him we proclaim, him, not an ideology, not another system, not another philosophy, not another way of understanding the world, him, a person, the person, the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Notice, Paul is not saying that he is engaged in this apostolic ministry of evangelism and uh, the proclamation of the gospel with the power that he himself has produced. He is not an internal uh, 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 that, that, that spinning water uh, wheel thing that generates electricity back in the 1800s. He's not producing this power and energy within him. He is proclaiming him who is working with power within him. And so his energy, his power, his strength is not coming from that which he has obtained himself or performed towards. It's coming from God. We may not be apostolic office holders, but with the authority that has been entrusted to us, 
with this gospel that has been given to us. We bear a similar responsibility. Verses 28 and 29 are easily transferable to us. It is him we proclaim in our parenting. It is him we proclaim in our instruction. It is him we proclaim when we are working with excellence in the work environment. It is him we proclaim when we strive to be evangelistic amongst our neighbors. It is him, Christ, Jesus. So, when it comes to specifically endeavoring to bringing up those who are under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, how then are we to do this? How then are we to put, uh, to put this energy to work that he is powerfully working within us? Well, I'm going to give you three very simple steps. I do not have a formula for you to parent, but I believe these basic reminders and basic encouragements will help you in this endeavor. Number one. Pray for your children. We ought to pray for our children. Pray for your children. <laughs> pray that the Lord would soften their hearts. Pray they would hear the gospel. Pray that they would be sensitive to the Spirit's conviction of their sin, just as we have become sensitive to the Spirit's conviction of our sin. Pray that God would lead them to respond to the gospel by faith, that they would rest in the finished work of Christ, walking by faith and not by their own works. Do you know what I walked out of at that graduation ceremony uh, when these children, or these 18-year-olds and 17-year-olds were being encouraged to take on the world? That they have all the power within themselves to go do whatever they want. The world reminds us and our children that they must continue to strive, that they must earn what they have. Participation trophies don't really do that, but you get what I'm saying. We ought to remind our children of the gospel that we have received, that we must rest in by faith. To not walk in our own works, but to walk by faith in Christ. Pray for your children. Number two, instruct your children. The Christian faith necessarily involves instruction. You may not see yourself as a gifted teacher, but you do have a responsibility to instruct your children. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul gives thanks that the Romans had become obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching to which they were committed. So they're committed to specific teaching that they have received and they've become obedient from the heart. They've not manufactured this obedience. They've not tried to uh, make this up as they go along. They've received godly instruction, godly teaching the gospel, and they've become obedient from the heart. So how then can we instruct our children? Again, I'm not an expert at this, but I think a few things that we can do, we can read and teach the scriptures to our children. Now, that may sound like a daunting task, but brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Paul's command in Ephesians chapter, chapter 6, verse 4, is given in the context of the local church. So, remember, there are brothers and sisters around you to encourage you in this endeavor. There's no reason for us to reinvent the wheel. So, consider maybe using one of the historic Protestant catechisms uh, with your children. My personal favorite catechism for my own personal study and instruction is the Baptist Catechism that was put forth in 1689. You can also use the New City Catechism that the kids in our Gray Station are currently going through. 
the New City app is super helpful. If you uh, want to learn more about that, reach out to Brett, and I'm sure he'd be happy to walk you through uh, the, uh, the, the, that specific curriculum. There are helpful books that you can also use. I'm always recommending books. Let me recommend a couple more. Uh, you can use uh, what uh, my wife and I are using currently, More Than a Story by Sally Michael. Pastor Josh, thank you for that book. It's been a gift. You can also use the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Uh, if you want to keep your children in the pews with you during worship, uh, you know uh, something that you can do to help them? There's a Jesus Storybook Bible coloring book. And so if you want to help your children be engaged, you can get a copy of that coloring book in the book cart, and they can color and learn about Jesus as they're coloring. How amazing is God's provision there? There's so many others that will help you teach your children the scriptures in a Christ-centered perspective. But in instructing your children in the Christian faith, it doesn't have to be overly complicated, nor does it need to look exactly like another family's approach. But prudence would advise, however, that your instruction be age-appropriate, that it be uh, thoughtful, and that it be grounded in sound doctrine. Keep things simple and clear. Also, maybe this helps to alleviate some burden off of you. Consistency trumps creativity. And if you look at the old catechism, catechism, catechisms that were used from way back in the early church, it's not super creative. It's just really thoroughly biblical. Consistency trumps creativity. Instructing our children can be as simple as reading a passage of scripture together, briefly talking about it, maybe even singing a song, and praying together. It kind of seems like what Paul has in mind for Christians in general. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If you don't know what song to sing, consider grabbing a loop, because all of the songs that we sang this morning are in the order of worship, and you can sing the song. Charles Spurgeon once said, whether we teach young Christians truth or not, the devil will be sure to teach them error. Brothers and sisters, we must instruct our children. Number three, entrust your children. Now, this might be the most challenging one of all. So when I say uh, that we must entrust our children to the Lord, I am not talking about baby dedications or infant baptisms. What I mean is, we must entrust our children and trust the Lord. What I, what I mean is, that God has called us to bring up those under our care in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He has not called us to convert our children. One of the things that we must have a clear understanding of is a biblical understanding of conversion. Conversion is what happens when God awakens those who are spiritually dead and enables them to repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ. Conversion, according to the scriptures, is solely God's work. And that's not what he's called us to do. He has not called us to do his work for him. Rather, God has called us to faithfully labor in love and in faith to bring up those who are under our care in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, leave conversion to the Lord and labor faithfully, trusting God. Now, in the uh, subject of parenting and bringing up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, there is no shortage of content that has been produced 
But for the sake of time, I'm going to leave this here with you. Entrust your children to the Lord. Engage in this work of disciple making in our homes. This is our first endeavor. Now, our second endeavor in our, uh, uh, this, in our covenant principle is that we are to engage in disciple making amongst our neighbors. So we have, we have agreed collectively that we will seek the salvation of our family and friends through God's word and our Christ-like example. Now, the most uh, widely quoted passage of scripture when it comes to evangelism and per- the proclamation of the gospel is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. If you're not familiar, so this is what Matthew writes at the end of his gospel. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, this, this brief passage is where we get the Great Commission. At the end of Matthew's gospel, there are a couple of things that I want to encourage you to look at. Jesus encouraged the church. Oftentimes we focus on this, uh, this noun commission or the verb to commission, but Matthew 28, 18, to, 18 through 20 is dripping with encouragement. Jesus encouraged the church. He reminded them all authority has been given to him. So in his authority, he has commissioned the church to go therefore and make disciples, to baptize those disciples, which brothers and sisters, we have the pleasure and the honor of being able to witness publicly baptism this morning. Not only are we to baptize those disciples in his authority, we are to teach those disciples everything that he has commanded. And we are to remember, again, dripping with encouragement here, that Jesus would be with all the disciples always and forever. These three verses were not exclusively delegated just to those who would hold the office of apostle. They're for all of us. Jesus reminds all of us, all authority is his, and he will be with us always, even to the end. Do you notice how Jesus begins his commission with an encouragement and ends it with an encouragement? All authority has been given to me, I am with you, even to the end. But when it comes to the work of evangelism, you know, I I, I struggled with uh, trying to construct this portion of my sermon because my natural inclination uh, is to share with you this grand vision of evangelism, this grand work that we've been called to, and that's true. But what I have noticed, even in my own experience of evangelism, is I have felt discouraged often. I have felt challenged. I think many of us would probably agree that sometimes when it comes to evangelism, we feel discouraged. Why is that? Why do we feel discouraged in our evangelism? I don't have a, a, a brief answer for that, and I, my time is running short, but I think oftentimes we feel discouraged with our evangelism because we think that the work of the results is up to us. We have to secure that work of successful evangelism by our own skill and by our own ability and by how uh, charismatically uh, winsome we are. Maybe I'm the only one that believes that in this room. But I think we would all agree that having come to know Christ, we desire for our non-Christian friends, family, and co-workers to come to know Christ as well. Brothers and sisters, we have not been called to be stingy with the gospel. We have been called to be generous with the gospel. 
Many of us may not have a lot of money to give away, but do you know what we have a lot to give away? We have a lot of gospel to give away. We have a lot of good news to share with the world that desperately is craving for good news. Have you spent a single moment considering the anxiety that not only our community faces, but our nation faces, that the world is facing now, even so many thousands of miles away? Our world is desperate for good news. And I'm not going to re-preach the end of Mark chapter 16 for you, but we have been given good news to be generous with. But if we're transparent, evangelism is oftentimes difficult. It can be awkward. It can sometimes be discouraging. But brothers and sisters, however way we may have uh, not done evangelism well or uh, maybe we're afraid to do it, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Our chief shepherd, Jesus, who is also the master of this great commission, is also our great encourager. He has promised he will build the church. He has shown us that he will soften hearts. He has shown us that he will draw those that he has called to himself. He, in his sovereignty, is choosing to use us to use the word of God to proclaim the gospel of God. This past week, uh, actually a couple weeks ago, um, uh, well, as I was preparing the sermon, um, I was reading some helpful material, and one brother uh, just reminded uh, pastors, uh, don't just share all the successful examples of evangelism, uh, share some unsuccessful examples. If you want to see an unsuccessful example, uh, consider Paul in Acts chapter 18. That would be a good passage for you to consider as you pray through Matthew 28 later. But several weeks ago, I'd been working with my neighbor to help fix this, uh, this, this leaky basement issue that we've been facing for some time. Uh, so my dear neighbor has been so kind and so helpful to uh, uh, help re, uh, rebuild this swell, and I used a jackhammer for the first time to dig up a bunch of rocks. But in the middle of jackhammering a bunch of rocks, he turns over and he looks at me and he says, so why did you ever want to become a pastor? What, what brought you to pastoral ministry? And I looked at him, and brothers and sisters, I kid you not, I didn't know what to say. I was like, oh, I'm sweaty, it's hot, I'm really dirty, and I've got a jackhammer in my hands. Actually, I had a digging iron in my hand at that point. And I said, well, you know, friend, I, um, I, I, I grew up not as a Christian, and uh, some friends were faithful, and they were persistent to share the gospel with me. And then when I was 17 and 18, I felt this call towards some sort of, some form of service, whether it was national service, almost joined the military, the Air Force specifically, um, but, you know, the Lord kind of led me in different directions. Um, and, you know, I just shared with them my, my brief testimony. Here's what I didn't do. I didn't share the gospel with them. And I really felt like I blew an opportunity. Because he asked me three specific times in this conversation, why did I ever want to become a pastor? I shared with them some general reasons why. But I felt like I blew my opportunity. So with a digging bar in my hand and several weeks that have gone on, I just felt discouraged. I thought, huh. Was that God's one opportunity for me to share the gospel with them? I don't know. But here's what I was reminded. God's work is not dependent upon how successful I have been. God has graciously continued to afford me opportunities to speak to him, uh, speak to my neighbors. Brothers and sisters, many of us will drop the ball when it comes to evangelism. Many of us are really good evangelists. 
But here are a couple of things that you can do. Here are a couple of things that we can do as we look to God and look to this great commission. Number one, pray for your neighbors. Jesus gives us very few categories of relationships in the New Testament. He speaks about husbands and wives, he speaks about children, and he speaks about neighbors in general. So most generally, everybody is a neighbor of yours. Pray for your neighbors. Ask the Lord to give you boldness and courage to share the gospel with them. Ask God that he will equip you. Ask God that he will help you. Ask God that he will help you to overcome fear and embarrassment and uh, this anxiety that you're not going to evangelize well. Uh, we've got helpful resources for you to evangelize well. You come, come meet me at the book cart. I will happily stack up your hands with some helpful resources. But pray. First pray. Pray for their families and their kids. Pray that God would soften their hearts. Pray for your unbelieving coworkers that you might be tempted to gripe about. Pray for your unbelieving family members that you might, uh, who might have a grudge against you or you might have a grudge against them. Pray for them. Uh, pray for your neighbors. Pray that God would provide you with more opportunities to, to connect with them. Even without a digging bar in my hand, the Lord has graciously provided me with more opportunities to connect with my neighbor. Pray that God would help you to build a relationship with them. Pray that God will give you wisdom to share the gospel. Pray. Number two, this goes without saying. If we are going to seek the salvation of our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving neighbors, we must evangelize to our neighbors. We are not given a free ticket out of not sharing the gospel. Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 17, he says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If God had chosen to write across the sky in big, bold letters, repent and believe in my son, he would have done that. Rather, God has equipped church, God's plan for global evangelization and neighborhood evangelization is you. It's us. It's all of us together as we endeavor in this work of seeking the salvation of those who are far from him. There's a famous quote that's wrongly attributed to Francis of Assisi uh, that says, preach the gospel and use words when necessary. Friends, that notion is so absurdly wrong. Words are absolutely necessary for the proclamation of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel, by its own nature, is an announcement. It's a declaration of words. It is news that is to be verbally explained and shared by our words. Our good works and our lifestyles are to complement and supplement the good news that we are to announce. So where are the places that you most frequent? Who are the people that you most frequently see? Friends, it is summertime, and I don't care about summer bod because this means that I have a free ticket to eat all the ice cream I want on Friday evenings. Friends, invite your friends, invite your unbelieving neighbors to come with you to go enjoy ice cream together. It's an opportunity for you to build a relationship with them. It's also an opportunity for you to exercise generosity if you're able to, to buy them their ice cream. And you can have an opportunity to connect with them, to speak with them, to understand who they are and what their worldview is. And then you have an opportunity to share your worldview that has been developed by God. And then now you have a clear opportunity to share the gospel. Gospel proclamation through ice cream. Praise God. Let me encourage you with a few other helpful reminders here. And really, I want to encourage you. I want you to not walk away feeling like, man, 
I got a whole lot of evangelism to do. I really hope you feel a burden to go evangelize, but I want you to be encouraged. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 reminds us to encourage one another, brothers. So let me encourage you. Number one, be friendly. If you're going to evangelize, be friendly. Friendliness is appealing and can be disarming. But grouchiness and crotchetiness is repelling. And the good news that you have, you want to be able to give it to them. And if you're real grumpy and cranky and your neighbor won't listen to you, it's going to be difficult for you to proclaim the gospel then. So just let me encourage you, be friendly. Number two, in your evangelistic interactions, learn to ask good questions. You do not have to become an expert at all of the world religions. You do not have to be an expert on how to carefully construct and deconstruct arguments. But it would behoove you to learn to ask good questions. What do you mean by that? Uh, can you help me understand why you believe that? Oh, uh, what, what was your experience with church and Christianity? Uh, so you, you think Jesus is like this. Where did you learn that? Learn to ask good questions and be a good listener. Right? So often we feel this pressure of urgency that, that, that we just don't pay enough attention to what our unbelieving friend may be saying to us in the conversation. What we might be thinking of, that, that this is true of me, it, we're, we're thinking of how to retort. Right? We're thinking of how to respond to the argument that's going to come before us. Learn to ask good questions and be a good listener. Our initial goal in evangelistic interactions ought to be friendly interactions. Our intermediate goal is meaningful conversation. Our ultimate goal is making disciples of Jesus. And learning to ask good questions and to listen well will help you in this process. Number three, exercise Christian hospitality. God has given you a dining table, Lord willing, with a few extra chairs to invite your neighbor over to share the gospel with them. The dining table can be a, a very useful tool and resource for the work of Christian evangelism. Maybe you don't want to invite someone over to your house. Well, take them out for ice cream. My personal favorite is uh, Cappuccino Crunch over at the Big Dipper. And Lord willing, my neighbors will join us for some Cappuccino Crunch. Coffee, ice cream with some chocolate fudge dipped in there and, and shaved uh, dark chocolate. Exercise Christian hospitality. Number four, brothers and sisters, whether we're in the middle of evangelism or we're praying about evangelism or we just evangelized or we're praying to be able to evangelize, remember, the gospel is good news. It is not burdening news. The gospel is good news. It is good news that we ought to celebrate. Nobody shares good news out of a burdensome obligation and duty just because they have to. When you have good news to share, you want someone to hear it because it's good news. Remember, the gospel is good news. Number five, trust God. Trust God. Regardless of how skilled and experienced you are in your evangelism or not, trust God. Our role, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, is to preach the gospel faithfully. Successful evangelism is not dependent upon our skill, our personality, or immense Bible knowledge. Those things might help. Our goal, our, our responsibility is to preach the gospel faithfully, to articulate the good news clearly, 
soundly, faithfully. Successful evangelism, true successful evangelism, is solely dependent on the Spirit of God who uses the Word of God as told by the people of God to proclaim the good news of the Son of God so that all may give glory to God. The results must be left up to God. Brothers and sisters, the last week I shared with you how we are all on this pilgrim's journey, how we are all encouraging one another to journey onward to this great city. Friends, we do not want to journey on the city insulated and isolated and by ourselves. This good news that we have is so good, it is too good not to share. We want to draw people onto the path and help them to journey onward to the great city that awaits us. But how will those who do not yet know of this great king that offers peace and freedom and forgiveness and lifts burdens and gives joy, how will they hear if one is not sent? God is sending us. John chapter 20, verse 21. Even as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There's a reason why we end our service with the simple, simple phrase, you are sent. Because, church, you have been sent to, lead, to, to share the gospel and to help people to see God, to journey onwards to his great city. This is why we have committed to endeavor to bring up any that are under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to seek the salvation of our family and friends through God's word and our Christ-like example. This good news is good news for those under our care and for those who have yet to hear. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate this good news now. God, we think of Jesus. We pray that you would help us now to think about Christ, to think about this good news that we are called to uh, bring up our, chil uh, our children in. Lord, help us to instruct them. Help us to carefully teach them. Help us to pray for them. Help us to entrust them. Father, we pray the same for our neighbors. Lord, we ask that you would give us greater opportunities to clearly, faithfully, without fear or shame, share the gospel because it is good news. God, it is this good news that we will be able to see in the form of baptism this morning. God, help us to celebrate the good work that you are doing here in Hagerstown. Father, we ask and pray that you would bless us and help us and strengthen us and help us to look to Christ on this journey onward to the great city in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray now. Amen.